We are live. I'm Seth 3.0 and I'm here today with Jay, co-founder of Say Labs. Say is a sector-specific blockchain that's built purpose-built for capital markets and DeFi. So we're going to be diving deep into Say today, um, why it's better than other blockchains out there that are doing DeFi stuff. And uh, I'm also dying to find out why Jay thinks app chains are not the best solution for building products right now. So before we get started, make sure to subscribe, hit the notification bell and the like button to get notified when we do live streams every Thursday. My guest, Jay Jog, is coming up next right here on The Interrupt. Hello. Hello, Seth. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Um, yeah, so, you know, I've been researching uh, Say for like a little while. I met your colleague uh, over at Cosmoverse and like I hadn't, really, I like, I hadn't really, you know, done a whole lot of research about the project then. And it's what, like, when I met him that I started looking into it. I was like, this is interesting. So what is this thing? Like, who is it actually for? And um, you know, why is it better than some of these other kind of app chains out there that are doing DeFi or, you know, other DeFi applications, you know, on like monolith chain and stuff like that. So yeah, I wanted to get you on today to understand like how this product is positioned and uh, who it's for, but also how it works technically. Cause as I've been finding out, you guys are doing some pretty interesting stuff under the hood to, um, really optimize this chain for, you know, fast transactions and like high transaction throughput and, uh, and really like optimize it for trading. So before we get into that, um, tell me about your background. And I, as I understand, you were working with Robinhood before, so I'm curious, like, what you were doing there and how uh, that experience informed, you know, what you're doing now. Absolutely, yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast, Seb. Um, appreciate you taking the time, and thanks for everyone who's in the audience following along. Um, so a little bit about me: um, I'm a co-founder of Stay Labs, and I lead engineering. I personally got into crypto back in 2017. Um, at that time, my roommate who was going through Binance Launchpad and we tinkered on a few different projects together. Um, and afterwards, I ended up joining Robinhood. So I spent almost four years over there, um, saw the company 10x, and I was an engineering lead when the GameStop crisis happened last year. So as I'm sure you were following along with, it was not handled very well. Um, and I think the biggest reason for that is because there was a complete lack of transparency around what was happening. Um, Robinhood was not communicating very well with insiders and with customers. And that just led to people becoming very, very unhappy with the entire situation. And that honestly highlighted to me how whenever you have these opaque systems, things, when they start going wrong, they become very messy very quickly. And we've seen this play out time and time again. Um, most recently, we saw it with 3AC and FTX. And one thing that people don't really understand is just how powerless you feel as an insider working at one of these places. Because you put your reputation and your career on the line when you make a decision to join the company. And um, you like when leadership is just completely being opaque with you and not telling you about anything that's going on behind the scenes, um, it just gets extremely frustrating, especially when there are people on your team that are asking you questions and you have no real idea how to respond to them because you have no clue what's happening either. So after going through that experience, I became much more of an on-chain maxi. Um, whenever things happen on-chain, whenever things happen in a decentralized way, they're inherently trustless, they're inherently uh, transparent as well. And that would have resolved a lot of the issues that we saw with, uh, to a degree with Robinhood and definitely with 3AC and FTX. 
Um, so because of that, last year, we started building a decentralized Robinhood. Um, more specifically, a derivatives exchange um, is what we started building at the end of last year. And then since then, we, uh, we started looking to the infrastructure we could use to build something like that on. We ultimately realized that the infrastructure is lacking, which is what ultimately led to us building Say. So it's a little bit about my journey. Yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, it's interesting about the Robinhood uh, situation. You know, I was following like a little bit of it, you know, but like not really in depth, but um, you know, what was it, was it the case that there was some like a lot of opacity going on internally about, um, you know, like user funds or like what, what was, what was going on there? Cause I, I wasn't really following that closely. Yeah. So Robinhood disabled um, specific stocks from being purchased. Um, these were pop stocks that were extremely popular at the time. Um, so like GameStop, AMC, for example. Um, and I personally believe that the reason Robinhood did it was not malicious. It was largely because of capital requirements that they had with counterparties. Um, but the, there was just no transparency around that at all. Like users just woke up one day and there had been this massive run, like this massive bull run on GameStop, um, AMC and other stocks. And you just weren't able to buy these stocks anymore. And it was just extremely, extremely negative from a customer standpoint. Um, and I mean, that specific day, the day after that, I got like dozens of messages, a lot of messages from people that I hadn't talked to in years. And people are just really unhappy. They're like, yo, what is going on? Um, and I think Robinhood definitely could have done a better job. Like, I think the ramifications of that are still being felt for the company overall. Like if that one specific event had not happened, I think Robinhood would have had a much more positive reputation. And I think they definitely could have done more for um, just keeping the community informed around why they were making the decisions they ended up needing to make. Yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. And I mean, being in Europe, like I, we don't have Robinhood here. Like I don't use it. I, I think someone showed it to me once. I mean, it's got a good UI and everything. So I can tell, I can see why, why it's so popular. Um, but yeah, so they were just like, they just decided to turn off uh, trading for these assets. Um, I think I remember that. I, I kind of remember now, you know, that, now that you mentioned it. Um, so you know, given the events that happened in the last week, um, mm -hmm. yeah, what's your kind of you know, given given what you've been through at, at Robinhood and having having been through some sort of you know large company with lots of customers being opaque uh, with with their customers about what they can and can't do with their money, um, what what is your feeling about what's happening now? Like, you know, um, yeah. how how does that feel to see this also happening? You know, very much in the crypto space. Yeah, I mean, it feels pretty terrible to see all the things playing out in real time. Um, I, I think with FTX specifically, it's especially bad because in the case of 3AC, it wasn't like normal users that were necessarily getting affected as much. But in the case of FTX, I think that it's a lot of people who are putting trust in basically in this centralized entity. And there was good reason to put in the trust because like the contract that they signed was basically saying that FTX could not do anything um, with the money that the users were depositing. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot of short-term ramifications for this. Like we're seeing this play out already. Like, first of all, a lot of people lost a lot of money, so they're going to be less likely to engage in DeFi. Um, then there's also everyone who um, is basically losing their confidence in the entire crypto industry overall. Um, so I think there's going to be pretty strong ramifications from that. And then there's also the regulatory side of it. Um, I, ironically, I think one of the really good things that is coming out of this is that DeFi's value proposition has never been stronger. Um, doing things on-chain, doing things in a decentralized way would have solved a lot of these issues um, because there's complete transparency. It's completely a trustless system. And I, I think that 
in any kind of centralized setup, um, if there are incentives to be opaque, and if there are ways that people can misuse that to get an edge over others, then I think we will see unethical players taking advantage of that. Um, so inherently, like long-term, I think the only real solution is going to be to do things in a trustless um, and transparent way. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, a lot of the ecosystem and a lot of folks that, you know, sort of I gravitate around in my community, obviously the narrative has been, um, you know, this is why we need DeFi. You know, it's, it's paradoxical, but like this is what will uh, actually accelerate uh, the use uh, of DeFi. You know, that that narrative feels great and you know it's it's really unfortunate that people lost their money and like i hope this is a is i hope that this is a lesson that you know in five to ten years from now like we'll look back on this as like a, a pivotal point where everything shifted but i don't think it's the only outcome i think there's also a possibility that um you know that that the ecosystem suffers greatly from this and that um that it actually has the inverse effect and what i mean by that is that it's it's possible that this um, this actually pushes regulators to regulate the entire space as one. So putting DeFi and centralized exchanges sort of in the same basket, and by doing that, we're going to create you know better centralized exchanges where this sort of thing likely is much more difficult to happen um, to, to 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 you know for this kind of fraud to occur. Uh, but on the other side, basically like obliterating all of DeFi. Um, by by making it very difficult by making it very difficult for innovation to happen there by making lots of use cases also like outside of the regulatory scope um, and uh, yeah so that that's also like something that I worry about um, but yeah we I mean we need to keep pushing this narrative that, uh, that DeFi is the solution I mean, it's the reason why we're here right like Bitcoin was created as yeah. a way to exit the financial system and all of DeFi and the entire crypto project is sort of descendant, a descendant of that ideology and of that project. And so, you know, we need to, you know, really keep pushing the narrative. And, you know, I think that there is like one positive thing that comes out of this possibly is um, that people build really great user experiences. And a lot of the technical, like this accelerates the technical, uh, solving some of the technical challenges and user experience challenges that we've had around DeFi and actually makes, you know, taxes much better than taxes. Uh, in in the short term, so you know it can go either way. Uh, obviously, like I want it to go in like sort of the positive direction, but it's a long road ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that I'm honestly looking forward to is having some greater degree of regulatory clarity around everything that is happening in DeFi. Because I think one just problem about being an American working on anything related to crypto is just the lack of regulatory clarity about a lot of things. So at least I think one great thing that come out of this is, same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. is a greater degree of, degree of clarity. Um, so yeah, I mean, difficult to comment on like what the actual um, repercussions and like how stringent the regulations will be, but I think having greater clarity is going to be helpful. Yeah, yeah, well. We'll, we'll see what kind of clarity we get. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's let's dive into say and uh, so like what what is what is say and you know on your website you you say it's a it's a it's a blockchain for capital markets. Uh, I think like yeah, infrastructure power powering capital markets. And mm -hmm. there's one thing that's I that I I hadn't heard yet and I find kind of interesting and I, I'm curious what it means is you, know, you say that say is a sector specific blockchain. And yeah. I, how is that different from an act application specific blockchain? Um, what's, yeah. what's the real distinction there and how is it actually manifest in the product and like how people use it? 
Absolutely. Yes, I mean, the story around Say is we were originally building that decentralized Robinhood. Um, and then we started looking into every layer one, every layer two, and all the other infrastructure we could use to get an exchange built. Um, and we realized that layer ones today are holding back exchanges. Um, they have no DEX optimizations. They all run into congestion issues, which is tolerable if you're an NFT collection, for example, but catastrophically bad if you're an order book. Um, and they're also a tad bit too slow, even the newer ones like Aptos and Sui. And this isn't the fault of the layer ones themselves. This is just because exchanges are very unique types of applications that have really stringent throughput, reliability, and latency requirements. Um, so after doing that investigation, we started building Say, which is a layer one that is optimized for trading. So we basically customize every single part of the stack to help give exchanges an unfair advantage. Um, so if you look at the distribution of layer ones out there right now, they basically fall under two extremes. On one hand, you have general purpose chains like Ethereum and Solana, um, chains that are basically examples of the biggest chains out there. They're the ones that are most successful. Um, on the other hand, you have application specific ones like um, DYDX v4 and Osmosis. And rather than taking either of these extremes, Say is building and exploring the design space right in the middle. So we're not quite general purpose, we're not quite application specific, but rather we're use case and sector specific. Um, this helps unlock an entirely new design space. So the benefit of building an application specific chain is going to be the customizability. So you can tweak every single part of the stack to make sure you have the optimal infrastructure for your type of application. Um, that is something that we benefit from. Um, we're making use of Cosmos SDK, Tendermint Core, and we're able to optimize the entire product to help give exchanges the best possible infrastructure to build on. Um, but we're also taking to a degree a general purpose route where we have general purpose smart contracts that are allowed to get built on top of say, um, rather than having say only be an application specific chain. Um, and what this results in is social coordination is the uh, biggest benefit. So what I mean by social coordination is you can have multiple teams that are building on this ecosystem and every single team is part of the same community and they help the community grow a lot faster than if the community were just one specific project that needed to grow by itself. And that's why every single project that is a major project out there, it, it has this social coordination element to it. Like if you look at the top 10, 20 chains, they basically all have some degree of social coordination. Um, and that is the biggest benefit that we get from the general purpose side. So um, with this sector specific approach, we have customized um, infrastructure that is built. And we also have uh, this social coordination piece where multiple teams can build on say. So at this point, we have over 80 teams that are part of the say ecosystem. And they're all part of the same community, all helping the ecosystem grow. And this, this specialization is something that we've seen in Web2 as well. Um, blockchains are essentially just distributed databases. So we could look at the database industry for inspiration. Um, it started off very, very general purpose with products like Oracle getting released back in the day, right? Um, and then it gradually became more and more specialized. So now you're seeing products like Databricks Warehouse that are optimized for AI and ML. And we think that there's going to be a similar shift in crypto where we're, we started off with these general purpose chains and now we're going to go more and more towards these um, specialized chains like say getting built in the future. Yeah, no, this, um, this makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny because I've been putting together a deck right now um, where a, a, a lot of these sorts of narratives are, are being presented and, you know, with regards to the, the the internet, you know, like I think the internet um, evolved when things started to modularize and we had competition at every layer of the stack, right? And this is what enabled 
um, a lot of innovation to happen and optimizations to happen. And I feel like blockchains are kind of going through that same pattern, you know, with modularization of the tech stack. So, you know, the data availability, consensus, um, state and, and, and execution, but also of the services layer. So things like liquid staking, things like MEV. So there's there's a similar sort of modularization that's happening in the blockchain that in the blockchain space that, that happened in the internet, you know, over the last, I'd say throughout the early 2000s and, you know, uh, up until now, um, really accelerated in the last 10 years. Um, you know, what kind of social, like, I'd like you to talk about this social coordination stuff a little bit more and um, what what is, what, what are the kinds of social coordination that we're looking for in a sector specific chain? And, you know, what are the benefits to social coordination that sector specific chains would enable? Mm -hmm. So I think there's the community aspect of it, and there's also the technical aspect of it. Um, technical aspect is pretty straightforward. Um, if you have everything being part of one blockchain, then you can have atomic transactions that span multiple projects. Um, and I, I do believe that will lead to substantially greater innovation than if you have projects that can't interact with each other. Um, and I think that's one of the limitations, honestly, of building in Web2 right now. Like different companies are not able to necessarily interact with each other in a super seamless way. Like they generally have to have these massive like um, agreements. And like, I, I saw like how slow the process was when I was working at Robinhood. Um, in, in DeFi, things can just happen like in the scope of like a day or two, like people can set up smart contracts that are crossing multiple projects and like the innovation space is just much faster. And I think that's one of the limitations, at least right now of doing stuff that is um, completely multi-chain, um, like spanning different app chains. Um, it's that you can't have atomic transactions so there is like what I mean by an atomic transaction is if you have like two separate parts of a transaction executing something on, uh, let's say, project A and then executing something on project B. And if that thing on project B feel, fails, then you will roll back that thing on project A. Um, that's yeah. not something you inherently get with um, uh, multi-chain transactions. In multi-chain transactions cases, you will have something happening on uh, chain A, and then afterwards there'll be something that asynchronously happens on chain B, and there's no good no good way to revert the state on chain A if what's happening on chain B fails. Um, so that's the technical side of it, and we think that will enable much faster um, innovation. Uh, the second part of it is more a social piece. And if you look at every single ecosystem that has become massive, like if you look at Ethereum, if you look at Solana, um, even if you look at Terra, like Terra is a um, algorithmic stablecoin, like their algorithm stablecoin failed, but they were able to foster an entire lunatic community that was very, very strongly knit. Um, and in my opinion, that helped the ecosystem grow, not just like linearly faster. Like if there's end projects, I don't think it's going to be linear growth. I think it's going to be more kind of um, exponential growth that happens when you have multiple projects that are all part of the same ecosystem that can all help that ecosystem grow. So um, that, that's why I think most of the big ecosystems out there, they all have the social coordination element to them. Um, and that's why I also think that sector specific chains are going to be a lot more prominent in the future. Yeah. I mean, with, with the technical aspect, so of course, when, when you're building a chain that has a, like contracts living on the same state, uh, you're going to be able to have this composability, um, oh, I'm losing you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Standing desk. Get it. Um, <laughs> so you're going to have to be able to have this. You're, we're going to be able to have this composability um, and uh, and atomic transactions, right? So like, yeah, we're used to this. We're used to this in Ethereum, of course. And with a multi-chain uh, in a multi-chain environment, 
you know, those, those, those messages have to pass between chains and then there might be some kind of callback or like one chain might be, might be um, examining the state of another chain, but it's not entirely impossible. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, with things like interchain queries, interchain accounts, I think we will get there at some point um, and it, it will feel pretty seamless in the same way that it feels quite seamless today. Like, when you're using an app that's making an API call, when that API call fails, like you get some message uh, or when it works, like you get some result, right? But in the end, I think it's it's inevitable that these things will happen. Right? The fact that we live in a multi-chain world means that we will have chains that talk to each other, means that we're going to have to like optimize this kind of the user experience around this. Um, that will be different from, you know, if you're just doing it internally on your own chain. It's like when you're going, when you're on Facebook, like you're, or any, you know, any application um that application might have different pieces to it or different services but uh yeah you don't really as a user you don't know there's just something happens right um yeah so yeah from from yeah yeah so i i definitely agree that there will be better infrastructure and tooling built up around this in the future i think that right now it is definitely a lot clunkier like it introduces additional latency to the user experience it also it introduces a lot more complexity if you want to have like these callbacks that result in rollbacks happening on like chain A, for example, like if you had a market order getting placed and filled on chain A, then that's updated the entire state of the order book. And there's a lot of transactions that are dependent on that that also got executed. Like there might be 20 transactions got filled on the same market. And then you would need to somehow roll back the transaction that failed. Um, and then also update the prices that the other 20 transactions got. And in that same time, there might've been second order effects of that. Like those 20 orders might've been used to do other things. So I think it just becomes mm. a very complicated problem. Um, to, do be, mm. to be doing seamlessly. But I, I do think that there will be a lot of innovation happening in this space, especially as um, there start to be larger app chains. I think it's kind of inevitable that there will be um, more people spending more time to build out this tooling. Um, I think right yeah. now this tooling isn't at a, anywhere close to a terminal state yet. Um, that's why I also think that it's an app application specific chain. Um, you are going to definitively have better infrastructure than any kind of general uh, purpose chain. Like that is one of the biggest reasons to build an app chain. Um, I also think it's going to be harder to become as big as a general purpose chain unless you take more of a um, sector specific approach where you start fostering a community on top of your uh, on top of your chain. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were describing you know, this like monolithic chain, application chain, sector specific kind of in the middle earlier, you know, what came to mind is osmosis. And like I, I see osmosis as an application chain that will probably tend towards sector specific uh, because they've enabled Cosmosm uh, because they're uh, and, and, and they're allowing, you know, they are allowing or they will allow contracts to to deploy there in a permissionless in a permissioned way uh, because they're optimizing you know every layer of the stack and making it better for DeFi and stuff. So I, I feel like the application chains of today will become the, the sort of sector specific chains of tomorrow. I wonder if you think this is mm -hmm. the case or if you think things will just like remain I very specialized. I, I definitely think there will be a push to make something like that happen. I, I really think it depends on what the specific um, thinking behind the community of that chain is. Um, for example, with DYDXD4, I don't necessarily think they will open it up to make it more sector specific. I think that in DYDX's case, they want to control the entire experience and therefore they only want to allow DYDX branded products to be built in that ecosystem. Um, in the case of Osmosis, we're starting to see this happen, and I think that'll happen for other application-specific chains as well. Um, I think the fundamental issue with starting off as an app chain and then migrating over to a sector-specific chain is credible neutrality. Because as an app chain, you've already built your product, 
And at the chain level, you're always going to be supporting that specific product. And at the chain level, there's also going to be, um, I guess, overarching things that you are trying to aim towards. Like in Osmosis case, for example, it probably wants to become like finance and there will be applications that are getting built on top that are now going to be competing against the core decks of the chain. And in the future, they might be competing against the aspirations of what that chain wants to be supporting as well. So if you're building a perps exchange on Osmosis, on Osmosis right now, um, in the future, Osmosis might try to launch it on its own perp exchange. And that credible neutrality piece is a little bit up in the air. Whereas if you start off from a purely general purpose or sector specific route, um, like we're not building any applications on say, and I think that mm. it's going to, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have over 80 teams that are part of the say ecosystem right now, because they're not worried about what the future growth is going to look like. And if we're going to be biased towards any specific projects. Okay. Is it fully permissionless? So like anybody can deploy there without uh, like a governance vote or, or anything like that? Yeah. So we started off wanting to be permissioned. Um, and that is uh, what resulted in uh, like the first five to 10 teams coming on. But after chatting with a lot more teams, after doing a lot of debate internally, um, we've decided that we're going to be making it permissionless at mainnet Genesis. Um, the largest reason for this is we don't want to be limiting the types of applications that can be getting built on top of say. Um, for example, if you look at NFT marketplaces, if you look at games, um, one of the biggest things that they're doing is creating tokens that are then traded. Um, and yeah. I mean, the entire purpose of say is to be enabling on-chain trading. So we don't want to be the ones deciding like what applications are allowed to be getting built on say and which ones are not. So we're going to be letting the basically open market decide. Um, so yes, yeah, say will be fully permissionless. Okay. What's, you know, what, what, what's the risk of like, let's say, say, you know, like grows to become massively successful. Um, there's all sorts of applications building there that are kind of in the, you know, capital market sector or like the finance sector. And then, you know, someone wakes up one day and says, oh, I'm going to like deploy my NFT market space, marketplace there because like save super fast. And like, I don't know, there's like some features that are interested, interesting for this. And, and all of a sudden it sort of gets captured by this industry that you didn't intend it to. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. So I, I guess the inherent question you're asking, like, how do we stop congestion from happening, right? Well, how do you curate the ecosystem? I mean, like stopping congestion is one thing, but at a social level, it's like, how do you sort of curate the experience of, and I don't know if that's something you're, you're looking to do, but like, yeah, what's the what's Yeah, the I mean, we, we realized pretty quickly that it's difficult for us to be making any significant decisions around that. Like, we don't want to be saying whether an NFT marketplace should be allowed or should not be allowed. Because currently every single application in crypto, it's the main thing that ends up happening, like with these applications, they create some type of tokens that then need to be traded. Um, so essentially a lot of things that are very popular in crypto right now, like everything related to DeFi, also things related to NFT marketplaces and like games are also built up around exchanges. Like they all need some um, infrastructure to be trading on. So we're not going to be excluding certain types of applications from getting built on say. Okay. And and how do you expect it to scale? Like we're going to get into the technical bit in a sec here, but you know, at some point, like I think the thing about application specific chains that that um, you know it ha that is the advantage here is that you know whatever happens, like they can always like the the number of transactions will always be sort of limited to that application, and you know um, you can optimize that blockchain to. Uh, have the highest amount of throughput 
for your application, but you're just dealing with you know one application space, uh, and no no one's competing for the bandwidth. Um, you know, we've seen this it, we've seen this problem in Ethereum where applications are competing for bandwidth uh, for transactions uh, for for transaction throughput, and even though sure there's like twenty two thousand transactions per second as you say on your website, like fast finality. What's the strategy if it becomes massively successful and then, you know, those limits are starting to get pushed? Are you thinking about like, what are, is it like a layer? Are there like layer twos or you start building your own ecosystem or what's the strategy here? Yeah, so a couple of thoughts around that. Um, I guess, first of all, we one of the reasons we decided to make use of Cosmos and Tendermint is because it's extremely modular. So we are we've already done a lot of work to help basically push the bounds for what Cosmos and Tendermint can offer. Um, in the longer term, we can try to replace certain parts of Cosmos and Tendermint. For example, changes the consensus, changing the consensus mechanism um, or changing the mempool implementation to give us higher throughput that we can support. Um, so the core idea over there is the first approach would be to try to vertically scale and take the current infrastructure that we have and make that better so that we don't need to horizontally scale in any way. Um, then at that point, the second question becomes like, with any ecosystem, there ends up being a point where like you're just capped off at the amount that you can go vertically. Um, and at that point, you have to go horizontally. And then the question largely becomes like, what is the kind of access patterns that you're seeing in the current ecosystem? And like, what do they need to grow? So for example, if you're seeing a lot of applications that are not necessarily composing with each other, it might be okay to have a sharded architecture where you have different shards that are uh, don't necessarily need to be atomically composing with each other. And that ends up being a very simple way to scale. Um, where the main Cosmos, uh, like where the main state chain becomes similar to the Cosmos hub. Um, and then there's consumer chains to get built up. The other approach that we're exploring is having rollups getting built. And we're already seeing a rollup getting built on say right now. Um, that's called Nitro. That is a SVM optimistic rollup. So it's basically like yeah. our optimism. Yeah. Um, except it's running the Solana virtual machine, so C-level. Um, so we're already seeing examples of that happening on say. Um, and it's difficult for me to comment exactly which approach will become more popular in the future. Um, but there's, I think a lot of it will depend on the access patterns, but there's a good amount of thinking that we've done to our side. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the Nitro team, I, I, I have them on my radar. I, I wasn't thinking, should I get them on? Should I speak with them or not? Um, do you, do you, so you think it's interesting what they're doing? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we noticed from our side, like, when we started chatting with folks that are um, building DeFi applications, building trading applications and other ecosystems, um, there were a lot of Solana teams that were interested in coming and building in the Cosmos space. Uh, the only thing that was preventing them from doing so is they needed to take their um, Solana smart contracts and convert them into Cosmos smart contracts. And there's a lot of lift that comes with that. Like, even though they're both in Rust, it still requires a substantial amount of time to uh, have it fit the Cosmos specifications. And you also need to get yeah. it audited again, which requires more money. Um, so if you could just seamlessly deploy your audited contracts in the mm -hmm. Cosmos ecosystem, that would be huge. And that's why Nitro started building um, an SVM rollup, because it makes it extremely easy for Solana teams to start building in the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a very clear demand from Solana teams to start expanding to other ecosystems right now. Okay. Yeah, I think I'll reach out to them and get them on at some point. Um, cool. So yeah, let's let's dive into the technical stuff. So uh the your doc says there's a, a twin turbo consensus engine uh mm -hmm. with uh intelligent block propagation and optimistic block processing so i want to know what that means 
then there's yeah. a native order book magic engine. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, you guys have optimized Tendermint, and there's like this parallelization. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's let's walk through all the different uh, technical optimizations uh, that that you guys have built. Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, so say is a fully sovereign layer one blockchain uh, with its own validator set. So we are not making use of any kind of shared security. Um, we initially got started by building with the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint core. Um, at this point, we have forked both of them to give us better performance for what we're trying to build. Um, now, at a high level, there are three things that we have done. The first is twin turbo consensus. Um, so we basically took Tendermint and worked with the Cosmos team, worked with Zaki to figure out how we can make it faster. So now it's the fastest it can possibly be. Um, we're seeing lower bounds of 300 millisecond block times in our internal testnet. And Tendermint just cannot become faster than uh, it currently is right now. Um, the second thing that we've done is we've added in parallelization. So we're currently the only Cosmos chain to make use of parallelization. And this has helped us substantially improve throughput as well. Um, and the last thing is we have a native order matching engine. So this helps prevent front running. It helps exchanges scale. Um, and it's just a primitive that's built into the chain that exchanges can make use of to very easily deploy. Um, so is this the only primitive that's in the chain or are there others as well, like other kind of financial primitives? Uh, this is the only financial primitive that's in the chain. So there, there's other stuff that we've okay. built out as well, like native price oracles, for example, but I, I don't think mm. that's at the same, same degree as this. And when you say it's native, like it's, oh. it's a Cosmos SDK module or, or it's like, or it sits, it sits at the application layer. It's not so, Cosmos on contract. Uh, the native price oracle and the order book, uh, the order matching engine, those are both, uh, SDK modules that we've implemented. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And through all of the changes that we've made, we're seeing in terms of like the performance stats, we're seeing a lower bound of 300 millisecond time to finality in our internal testnet. And we're seeing an upper bound of around 22,000 orders per second that we can process um, in our internal testnet as well. All right. Like, how does this consensus work? Yeah. What's what's different about yeah. this consensus? Yeah. Like, let's do let's do a deep dive into. Then, uh, um, yeah. 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 A few things that so like vanilla yeah, so tendermint. Versus, uh, say, Tendermint. Uh, Twin Turbo, yeah. So there, there's two things that we've done with Twin Turbo. Um, first is we've changed the way that blocks are propagated. And secondly is we've changed the way that blocks are processed. So I can go over both of them. Um, for sure. block propagation, the way that things normally work with Tendermint um, is that there will be a block producer and they will construct an entire block that'll have full transactions inside of it. So let's say there's yeah. transactions ABC. It'll have the entire contents of transactions ABC inside of that block. And then it'll break that block up into chunks and then send it over the network. And then validators will be waiting. And then they will receive the different chunks um, that have the full contents of transaction ABC. The only problem here is that every validator has a local mempool. And what generally ends up happening is all of the transactions in the block, they're already there in the validator's local mempool. So because of the gossiping layer, the other validator, validators, they will probably already have transactions A, B, and C in their mempool. So it's extremely inefficient for them to wait to receive transactions A, B, and C over the network, um, rather than just being told that like you should just look at uh, having a very succinct identifier for transactions A, B, and C. Um, so what we've ended up doing is we've changed the way that blocks. Uh, sorry, wait, isn't this like is this like SegWit? Doesn't SegWit work like this in Bitcoin? Uh, I think that this is similar to what Bitcoin, uh, at least the proposal that came out in Bitcoin. I'm, I'm not sure about the specifics of SegWit. Okay. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the block 
pro, uh, proposal message now will just have transaction hashes for ABNC. Um, and then the block, uh, the validators, they will receive this block proposal. Um, and they will then make use of, uh, they will construct the block locally rather than needing to wait for it over the network. Um, so we saw pretty substantial performance improvements by doing this. Um, the second thing that we've added in is optimistic block processing. So the way that optimistic block processing works is normally with Cosmos and Tendermint, you have to go through the pre-vote step and the pre-commit step before you start to process the block. Um, and this is definitely inefficient because most of the time the block that is proposed is the one that's being approved. So what we started to do is we have validators spin up a concurrent process. So they'll run some basic sanity checks on a block that they receive, then they'll spin up a concurrent process and they'll go through the voting steps as normal, but this concurrent process will be um, updating a candidate state. So it'll start executing the block and updating candidate state. And at the end of the voting period, if that block is approved, that candidate state will get committed. Um, and if that block is rejected, then that candidate state will get discarded. Um, and we only do this for the first block at any given height. So if the first block fails, then for subsequent blocks in that height, um, we will not be optimistically trying to process it to prevent validators from getting just overloaded with trying to run too many concurrent transactions. So we also saw pretty substantial performance improvements from doing that. And both of those two things make up um, optimistic block processing or make up twin turbo consensus. Okay. So the, the block propagation, if I can summarize this, uh, so validators you know, re like receive, uh, receive transactions in the mempool when they would typically, in vanilla tendermint, they would construct that block with all the transactions. That means that the block, um, you know, like quickly grows in size because there's all the transaction information. Meanwhile, that information is already, uh, already exists on all the other validators' uh, mempools. Um, mm -hmm. so instead of having the entire transactions where the blocks are only being propagated with the hash of the transactions, hoping that the other validators have them. And so they match them up whenever, um, whenever they, uh, whenever they receive them, uh, mm -hmm. whenever they receive the block, um, what, what happens if like, let's say there's some latency, I mean, like I realized in 2023, you know, Validators are quite professional. They're usually in data centers with high availability um, fiber connections. Um, mm -hmm. What happens if transactions are not uh, equally propagated across the network? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that so the happy path is the transactions are in the mempool. Um, the unhappy path would be where validators don't have transactions ABC in their mempool. So in that case, we still have the block producer. Like they will send the proposal message that has the transaction hashes inside of it. And then they'll still construct a block and then send it over the network to the other validator. So if you're a validator and you don't have transaction A, for example, um, you can just wait and you'll get the block parts and then you can just construct it using the same um, approach as you would be using with normal Tenderman. Okay, so there's like a failback mechanism. So it sends the block uh, with the transaction hashes, sort of optimized block. Um, yes. Validators are gonna get that thing first because it's small, because it's mm -hmm. lighter and smaller. Um, but yeah. basically like so, some short amount of time later, they'll get the real block or the full Yeah, block. exactly. So it'll be the block proposal message that has a transaction hash. So the proposal message is always the first thing that gets sent. Um, and yeah. with normal Tendermint, it would just have a transact a block hash inside of it. In our case, we add additional data to it. So we add the transaction hashes inside of it. Um, and then the other part of it where you send the entire block over the network, that part does not change. but validators can just construct the entire block locally as they, as soon as they receive that proposal message. Okay. 
Interesting. So do you, do you have a sense of whether or not these sorts of optimizations would get upstreamed into vanilla tendermint as a way to optimize it or? Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's one thing we've been chatting with uh, Marco about. So we'll, we'll figure out, I mean, all of this is already open source. So if anyone wanted to, they could upstream it themselves. Otherwise we'll be working with the Cosmos team to upstream it after we launch mainnet. Okay. And how does this fit into, like, I'm not super familiar with what's going on here yet. Uh, hoping mm -hmm. to do a podcast about this, but like, what's your sense of how this also fits into like the whole Tendermint to heterogeneous Paxos, you know, um, thing? Uh, yeah, I, I don't have too many thoughts about that right now. So I need to chat more okay. with Cosmos team to figure out how those would work together. Okay. Cool. And so, you, yeah, so you've, you've forked um, the Cosmos SDK and um, yeah, so there, there's. So, yeah, that was the first piece around twin turbo consensus. Um, yeah. The, the second piece is around parallelization, which we can get into yeah. as well, unless there was a. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. I'm curious about that as well. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, normally the way that a lot of blockchains work is they process transactions sequentially. So if there's five separate transactions, then each one will need to be run one after the other. Um, and this is inefficient because a lot of times these transactions, they are not mutating the same state. So you can be running them at the same time. So if you're running all five transactions at the same time, it'll take less time for that block to get processed than it would if you're running all five of them one after the other. Um, so the idea of parallelization is pretty simple. Um, it's also something that's been extremely common in Web2. Um, and currently, no other Cosmos chain makes use of it. Um, because I guess the, the, main, the main reason why you would use parallelization is if you think that you're um, CPU bound in terms of processing time. So if you think that a lot of your time to finality or block, uh, block time ends up being tied to how long it takes to process something. So there's some chains that have come up with solutions for this. And there's essentially two different camps of solutions. One is the solution that um, is itself what Aptos is doing. Um, so this is where you try to run everything in parallel initially, and then there ends up being conflicts, and then you rerun those conflicts sequentially. Um, I'm personally not the biggest fan of this approach because if the overall goal that you're trying to do is optimize for performance, um, having to rerun things leads to worse performance. And what typically ends up happening in any ecosystem or in any change is there ends up being hotspots of activity. For example, on Ethereum, it might be stuff like uh, Uniswap and OpenSea contracts that end up getting uh, a lot of traffic. So a lot of the stuff that you try to run in parallel will end up having conflict anyway, and then you'll need to run that sequentially. Um, so then the other approach is where the dependencies are defined upfront, and then you construct some kind of access list when that uh, block is being processed, and then afterwards you will run that. And um, this has the additional complexity where the developers need to define the dependencies upfront but it does result in better performance at the processing level. This is similar to the approaches that Solana and Twitter are taking. Um, okay. Sorry, do you, do you have a question? No, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not very familiar with how uh, Aptos and Sui process transactions, but so the, the, the idea here is that you can process transactions in parallel rather than sequentially. So can, can you give some, like a concrete example here um, so yeah. I, I think I've sort of figured, I, I think I sort of get it, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. So let's say there's me and you, and then there's two other people. 
let's say I'm trying to yeah. send some save from my account to your account. And then these two other people, you have person C trying to send say from their account to person D's account. Um, so with sequential processing, first it'll be my me sending to you that happens. Then afterwards it'll be person C sending to person D. Um, these are yeah. independent events. They can be run in parallel. Yeah. So it'd be faster to run them in parallel. So what happens with say is we have dependencies getting defined at the chain level um, that'll then get filled in at runtime based off of what is actually happening. So in the case of this bank send, um, there'll be the, the resources that'll be updating are the four of our bank accounts, right? So it'll be, my account will be getting updated, your account will be getting updated in person C and D's account. Um, so at runtime, uh, at the chain level, there's a template that's defined. So it's basically saying for the bank send message, there's a template that'll get filled in that looks at both people's accounts. Um, and then at runtime, it'll get filled in with all four of our accounts. And then a, now we know that these four accounts are the ones that are being touched. So then an yeah. access list can get created. And since there's not the same accounts being touched, both of these transactions would get run in parallel. Now let's say that there's another transaction um, that is person C sending something to you. And let's say that the ordering of transactions within the block is first, I sent to you, then afterwards C sends to D, then afterwards C sends to you. Then in that case, we know that there are, there's a dependency. The dependency over yeah. here would be that transaction from C sending to you can only run after I'm done sending to you and after C is done sending to D. So in that case, the access list would get created where you have the two parallel transactions initially of me sending to you and then C sending to D. And then afterwards, there's the other transaction um, of C sending to you that is dependent on the two earlier transactions. So okay. we basically have okay. something like yeah. that getting constructed at runtime. Okay. And is, is there an opportunity like to, to like, I don't know, front run transactions here where you could potentially be executing a transaction like on some other part of the chain, whereas like this part of the chain thinks that it's perfectly fine and like there would be some conflict or? No, so that will be, everything is fully deterministic. There, there's no possible way to do that with the current state implementation. Okay. Um, and that's because yeah. there is a pretty clear order ordering of transactions within the block. So as long as that ordering has been defined, um, the processing of it will be completely deterministic. So the, you still need consensus on the ordering of transactions within the block. And then right. at the execution layer, you will be able to process in parallel. And when you say that it's being parallelized uh, and, and like the processing is being parallelized, you're, you're talking about like actual validator nodes and how they process these transactions on their CPU. That is at that level? It's at that level, exactly. Okay. So that... That optimization, um, like that creates enough optimization to be significant? Like, um, yeah. Yeah. How, how significant yeah, so is when this? There's, yeah. 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 So we're still running load tests on this specific piece, but we anticipate it to be very significant when there's a lot of different types of messages coming along. So parallelization yeah. ends up being useful when there are parallel, parallelizable workloads. So if you have everything going through one smart contract, then the effects of parallelization will be minimal. But if you have a lot mm -hmm. of different activity, like different types of activity happening in the ecosystem, um, then it will be pretty substantial in terms of the performance improvements. Um, so okay. that, that's one type of work that we've done, which is deliver TX parallelization. So that, that's what we were just talking about. Like in the Cosmos SDK, the way that you will be processing is there'll be a begin, or begin block stage, then there'll be a deliver TX stage, and then there'll be an end block stage. So the delivered yeah. TX stage is where all normal transactions get processed. And then you can also define additional functionality at begin block and end block. We actually have two types of parallelization. 
we have stuff at deliver TX, and then we also stuff, have stuff at the inbox stage. Um, so in the case of say, we wanted to make use of frequent batch auctions, which we can get into later, but basically the native order matching engine runs at the end of the block. And because of that, we also have parallelization happening at the end of the block where independent markets will be getting run in parallel with each other. So if you have like a say spot market and then a Bitcoin perps market, they're not dependent on each other at all. Um, so they will also be getting run in parallel. And uh, in that case as well, it's the same kind of idea where if you have different markets, a lot of different markets that are being processed, that'll lead to substantially improved performance. If you basically only have one market where all of the activity is happening, then the performance improvements will be minimal. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I had I hadn't considered that, you know, at the validator level, parallelizing transactions was such a performance improvement. But I guess, yeah, I mean, if you're running like so, a blockchain that has like tons of transactions and you can parallelize some of those, I suppose, then you can produce blocks much faster. Uh, exactly. So just to just to be clear, this is at the execution stage that it's being parallelized. So. Uh, validators yeah. will agree at the consensus level that transactions ABC are getting run in this order. And then when they're actually executing it, being able to deterministically paralyze the transactions will uh, improve performance if there's paralyzable work. At execution. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on state transition, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, let's talk about this front 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 uh, front running protection. Uh, what's what's the approach here? Yeah, um, so say has a native order matching engine which runs at the end of the block, and there's a couple of things that it facilitates. One is front running prevention. The other piece that we can talk about as well is order batching. Um, so around front running prevention, what would normally happen when you're processing transactions is they would be getting run one after the other. Um, in the case of say, what we do is we aggregate all these transactions together at the end of the block and then we execute them at the same time. So uh, the execution price will be at a uniform clearing price. So it's going to be a price that is the same price for everyone. So to make this more clear, let's say that the order book has two sell orders on it. Um, let's say one sell is for $10, the other sell is for $11. And then two market orders come in to buy that asset. Um, and let's say that all of these are one unit each. So what would normally happen with sequential processing is the first order will get filled at $10, the second order will get filled at $11. So the ordering of transactions within that block matters. If you're first, you'll get a cheaper price in this example. Um, with frequent batch auctions, they both get filled at the same price. So they would both get filled at $10.50. So the market orders would get a more fair price within that block. It also makes it so that the ordering of transactions within that block no longer matters. Um, and whoever has placed limit orders, those makers would be still getting the exact prices they wanted of $10 and $11. Um, so we, we are making use of frequent batch auctions for this processing at the end of the block, and it'll help prevent any front running related to um, order book transactions within the scope of a block. Um, does that kind of make sense so far? Uh, sorry, you're muted. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I'm wrapping my head around it. So um, yeah, and so how does this fit into your say broader like MEV strategy because you know some some chains like Osmosis have want you know want or wanting to internalize a lot of the MEV at the chain level. Others are mm -hmm. letting markets kind of decide how MEV should be distributed. Um, what's your strategy here? 
Yeah, so the first approach, the first line of thinking we have is we should try to prevent all negative types of MEV as and when we can. That leads to the best user experience. So that's why we've added in frequent batch auctions to help with front running prevention, because that will help prevent this negative MEV. Now, we also realized that it's impossible to completely prevent MEV. Um, first of all, there are some types of negative MEV that validators can still do. Um, one example would be multi-block front running. So in the case of this order book example, um, if you have validators that control three blocks, so if there's validator collusion, they control three blocks, and you uh, submit a transaction to purchase an asset, and let's say that asset is $10 and you accept up to 5% flippage on it, so you're willing to buy it for up to $10.50. Um, a validator could see that, and then they will just exclude your transaction in block A, and they will put in their own market order to buy that asset for $10. Then in block B, they'll place a limit order to sell it for $10.50, and then in block C, they'll include your transaction in that block, so your transaction will get filled in $10.50. So that's an yeah. example of multi-block front running. Um, we are going to is be- this common in, Is this common for, uh, is this like a common MV strategy in say like Ethereum or other chains? Uh, I, I don't think it's, I don't think multi-block strategies are that common yet. Uh, they're substantially more complicated. Um, I, I think in the Cosmos ecosystem as well, it's not common. Um, however, with that being said, like this is a theoretical approach that could happen. And once there starts being greater um, just volume of activity happening, it'll become more and more profitable to be trying to run strategies like this. So because of that, like one thing that we're looking into is randomizing block proposers. So right now with Tendermint, it's deterministic to know who the block proposer is. Um, there are other chains that have made use of logic to randomize that uh, entire process. So that's one thing that we're looking into as well. Uh, that can help prevent that type of negative MEV. Um, but for anything that's not related to the order book, for example, if there's like an AMM built on, say, um, we can't prevent front running on that. And then there's also other types of MEV, like liquidations and ARBs that are generally considered to be positive for the ecosystem. Um, and we would want to prevent spam tied to those types of MEV. Because what, example, what happens on Solana, for example, right now, um, is that if there's a liquidation or an ARB that is extremely profitable, a bunch of people notice it. And if you have to pay a fraction of a penny to get into the transaction, it's extremely profitable for you to just spam the network with as many transactions as you can to try to be the first one to win that liquidation or our opportunity. Um, so we, ra rather than having like that be the default mode where like people just try to spam the network, um, what we want to have happen is something, a system similar to Flashbots on Ethereum, where there's off-chain auctions that happen. Um, and these off-chain auctions would be people submitting private transactions and then whoever submits the highest bid Will win a specific opportunity, for example, win a liquidation or win an ARB. And then that off-chain node will submit a prioritized transaction bundle um, to the core, like whoever the block producer is going to be. Um, and then from there, that block producer will just make sure that that, uh, that transaction gets prioritized, that bundle of transactions get prioritized. And then there will be MEV redistribution happening as well. So whatever the bids were that were submitted to these off-chain nodes, they'll get redistributed to validators and stakers. Uh, that's what we think will happen in the longer term. Um, I'm also not the biggest fan of having in-protocol MEV, um, specifically like the idea of, say, having logic getting run after every single transaction to try to ARP across different markets, for example. Um, I personally think that that'll lead to additional complexity at the chain level, and that will discourage sophisticated market participants from coming in, especially when, the, like, when you have these off-chain auctions happening anyway. Um, that'll result in most of the MEV being redistributed to validators and stakers, so being redistributed to the chain. Um, so I think that there's less upside tied to an approach like that for say specifically. 
Okay, so so um, yeah, I mean, caveat like what what one thing here like MEV is not a topic that I'm like very familiar with, like sort of at a high level. So I mean, I understand that there's you know there's what is considered kind of good MEV and what is considered bad MEV, and then there are there are chains that have the approach of wanting to internalize all of that MEV or internalizing the bad MEV or kind of minimizing the ability for the market to um, execute on the bad MEV while leaving market participants the ability to um, to compete on the good MEV or, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, non-value extracting MEV or whatever. Uh, and then there are chains who are just like, you know, do, do what it like, market participants can capture all of the MEV. And I think this is really the kind of the Ethereum flashbot approach um, mm -hmm. where basically it's all up for grabs. Um, you know, osmosis would be sort of on the other end of that spectrum. It sounds to me like from what I'm hearing, um, there's, there's a desire to uh, capture some of the quote unquote bad MEV while leaving uh, the rest of it up for market actors to uh, so compete on. What I would prefer is for there to be no bad MEV on say, and we'll do whatever we can to prevent that from happening. Um, yeah. We also think that validators in the Cosmos ecosystem to an extent are going to be like, because their reputation is on the line on every single chain that they're validating on. Um, I think it's going to be less likely for them to engage in bad MEV. Um, with that being said, it's still a possibility. And like, there, if there's nothing we can do to prevent it, then it makes the most sense mm. to have that get redistributed to, uh, the chain rather than having that go yeah. entirely to whoever the searcher is that uh, identified that opportunity. Yeah. I think the question here and correct me if I'm wrong, the, I mean, the issue is that it's, yeah, sure. There, there's a reputational risk, but um, it's very difficult to identify when uh, a validator is in fact um, trying to capture the bad MEV. Is that like, yeah. Like, so unless you're doing like an audit of their software. Yeah. Yeah, do doing like a one-off, like noticing it in a one-off case is going to be more or less impossible because you don't actually know what transactions the validator had received in their mempool when they were choosing to order those transactions. Um, yeah. But it's definitely possible to start seeing patterns of behavior. And I think that's what a lot of these um, audits that have been performed retroactively to see like how much MEV is there on Ethereum or like how much MEV is there on Osmosis. Um, I think that's one of the things that they look for as well. But yeah, in the case of like yeah. a one-off thing, um, it will be difficult to identify that. Okay. Uh, I, I heard somewhere that, and I haven't confirmed this, that so this might be just just rumors or hearsay, but I, I, I heard somewhere that Osmosis was discussing um, penalizing validators that run uh, MEV software. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've also heard this. I'm I'm not familiar with that. No, I have not heard okay. the rumors. Then let's just forget I said anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let's talk about this this order matching engine. Um, mm -hmm. What's what does that look like, and how can applications building on say leverage it? Yeah. So it is a primitive that is built into the chain level. So it's an SDK module. Um, and if you want to build an order book based exchange on say, you can make use of that module. And in your smart contract, you would just need to define a few functions around how order placements, order matching, order um, 
basically settlement would work. And then you can very easy, easily deploy that smart contract and then say, we'll handle the rest of it. So say we'll handle the entire process around order matching. It'll be storing all the state tied to the order book in the chain itself. Um, and it'll also be handling um, settlement of funds once uh, depending, depending on the behavior that you've defined. So it makes it very easy for you to deploy these smart contracts and also make use of frequent batch options under the hood um, so that any smart contracts you deploy that you want to be making use of with this order matching engine um, will help prevent order book related uh, front running from happening. Hmm. Interesting. So at a high level, like this is a Cosmosm chain, right? We haven't talked about this, but I presume applications are building using Cosmosm. Yeah. So in the longer term, we envision that it'll be completely language and execution environment agnostic. Like in Web2, no one really cares about what language you're using, whereas unfortunately yeah. it's extremely critical right now in Web3. Um, so to get started, we are making use of only Cosmosm. But in the longer term, we envision that there will be uh, multiple execution environments supported at the chain level. Really? Interesting. Okay. So, you know, you could have Cosmosm as a module. You could also have like, you know, Ethermint and, and any other um, Cosmos SDK module that's our execution module. It, exactly. So, yeah, like, um, I guess the obvious one would be EVM to get started with. And I mean, under the yeah. hood, what's really happening with like the EVM module on Evmos is um, it just creates Cosmos SDK messages. And then these messages are interoperable if you're able to define the yeah. behavior with other Cosmos SDK messages. So we can make uh, that uh, EVM be interoperable with the rest of the chain and be interoperable with the order matching engine. Um, and we can also do that for other types of um, execution environments. Like I think SVM and MoveVM would be two of the other big ones right now, but whatever ends up being popular in the future, it is possible to support that. Um, the only downside is it ends up being a non-trivial amount of work to build it in at the chain level. Um, yeah. So I think that that'd be the biggest thing that would potentially slow down, slow down that process. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's I one mean, of the reasons. In, in the interest of to... specialization, in the interest of, sorry, in the interest of specialization, um, I mean, isn't there a case also to be made just to have one execution environment or like a very specialized execu execution environment? And also probably in the interest of composability and um, and having reusability of code. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for composability, that doesn't necessarily get hurt. If you're like the, the really good benefit of making use of Cosmos SDK and Tendermint Core is that you have complete customizability over every single part of the chain. Um, so you can yeah. still have composability between smart contracts. Like if everything under the hood is just becoming a Cosmos message. Um, but yeah, like the other point that you're making around potentially having um, only one execution environment and then just spending all of our time trying to optimize that execution environment. Um, that is one thing that we thought about. The, the other kind of line of thinking would be we want to make things as easy as possible for developers to be building um, because all developers they really want to do is focus on building things and we can just handle the rest of it to make that infrastructure as scalable as possible. And I think that's going to be the approach that results in the most developers coming on if you make it as easy as possible for developers to build on that ecosystem. Um, so that's, that's the approach that we're leaning towards right now to just make it as seamless for developers as possible. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so who's building? Like, I, I was on your website and saw that there's like an ecosystem page and there's like tons of applications here. Um, but yeah, you yeah, mentioned like so, 80 teams building on Say, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we 
personally got started with the project earlier this year. May we launched our initial um, testnet, and then around August time frame is, frame is when we launched our incentivized testnet. Um, at this point, we have over 80 teams that are building on, say, ahead of mainnet. Um, and these were originally teams that just got started building DEXs that are making use of the order matching engine. But now it's a lot of different types of applications that are building. Um, we have some NFT marketplaces that are interested in building as well. Um, we have a lot of core DeFi primitives getting built, and we are now starting to see some more um, native teams that are trying to build, um, I guess, unique applications on, say, that are not getting really built anywhere else. Um, so yeah, over 80 teams building right now. We also recently launched an ecosystem and liquidity fund. Uh, so this is a $50 million fund that market makers and investors are uh, have put money into that uh, will basically be used to provide liquidity to exchanges building on say. It'll also be used to invest on projects that are building on say. So once we announced that, it became much easier for native teams to start building because there is a pretty clear path for them to be both getting um, liquidity and also getting uh, funding. And yeah, so we're starting to see a lot more middleware type applications. So one of the projects that announced recently is Cargo, um, and that is a prediction markets middleware that is building on say. So basically other projects can come and build their own prediction markets on top of it. And it becomes very easy to um, have geographically specialized prediction markets getting built. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Folks should go to say network.io slash ecosystem. There's a whole list of apps here. So I see you have like a derivative DEX, there's a synthetics DEX, you know, obviously things like Axelar um, are are integrated here so people can bridge their tokens in and out. Uh, if they're not using IBC, you have cargo with like Kive. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I had the Kive team on a couple of weeks ago and um, I was curious, what is the, yeah, what's this partnership that you guys have done with Kive and um, what's the, uh, what's the play here? How, how is Kive providing like their infrastructure to say? Yeah. So one of the, so we have a native um, Oracle that is built into say the way that Kive would be helping would be providing one-off price feeds that that Oracle doesn't help with. So the way that the native Oracle works is validators, they will be required to submit price feeds for governance approved assets. Um, if the validators submit a price feed that is um, wrong, or if they submit a price, or they just don't submit a price feed, they'll be getting slashed. So we anticipate that this will be really good for certain types of assets. But if you're running a prediction markets, for example, and you want to get the outcome of a tennis match, it's not really appropriate for the native price Oracle to be supplying that information. Um, so rather mm -hmm. than doing that, we're, we're working with Kive to help facilitate those kind of um, price feeds or um, outcomes for different events. So th that is one way that Kive is going to be getting involved with, say. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I really like this this project. I think it's super cool. I mean, I'm a big fan of permanent storage stuff, and um, <laughs> I just think that, yeah. like they're just they're just killing it. Um, yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, before we wrap up here, like, what's the long term vision? Because what what are the, like when you first go on the say website, it's like okay, like this infrastructure powering powering. Uh, capital markets and you guys want to be like a decentralized nasdaq and you know there's the 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 narrative feels to be i mean i i don't know if this is this is what you're looking for but there feels to be there seems to be this kind of institutional attract like you're trying to attract folks that are looking for a very professional chain perhaps even institutions um mm -hmm. is is that the case and you know if if, if, if so, like who's, who are you targeting with this chain? What kind of applications do you hope people will build there? 
uh, beyond, you know, your run of the mill kind of DeFi, DGen app? Yeah. So, I mean, our, our mission is to build, build the best possible infrastructure for exchanges. Um, our long-term goal is to have, say, be the primary place where on-chain trading activity happens. Um, and this is not just restricted to retail. We want it to be the primary place where other types of uh, players also are primarily trading. So, for example, institutions. Um, but realistically, though, like institutions are never the first movers. Um, it's usually retail yeah. and power users that come over first. And once there starts to be organic retail volume, that's when institutions start to come over. So what I anticipate will end up happening is there will initially be the more degen power users that come over from other Cosmos chains that come over from Solana, Ethereum, like the more uh, on-chain native folks. That'll be the first tranche of people to come over. Um, afterwards, I anticipate that there will be applications on, say, um, that become very popular for retail to be using. Um, for example, prediction markets could be one of them or it could be perps or something else. Um, that'll result in more retail users coming over. And then afterwards, we'll start seeing more institutional adoption. So I don't think it's going to be like a two-month process or anything. I think it'll be definitely a pretty long-term process. But um, I, I think long-term, that's the most likely way that there will end up being a lot of on-chain activity happening. Cool. Well, um, yeah, thanks for thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on. And uh, it's been really interesting diving deep here. And um, I'm really I'm really curious where this whole twin turbo consensus stuff goes and if it gets if it gets sort of added into uh, into the cosmos SDK stack and you know I think that would be really beneficial for the for the entire ecosystem and yeah also looking forward to seeing what other kinds of applications uh, get built on say um, yeah what's the roadmap and where can people go to learn more and what's your call to action? Yeah, so call to action would be join our uh, follow say network on Twitter. So that's S E I N E T W R K. Um, that's where we're going to be posting a lot of updates. Afterwards, you can also join Discord to get more involved in the community. Um, in terms of the roadmap, right now we are in an incentivized testnet, and we're giving away one percent of the total token supply for incentivized testnet participants. So anyone that's listening to this, um, if you want to get involved with say, you will be rewarded for doing so as well. Um, so definitely check out the discord. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> check out the discord for more information on that. Um, and yeah, we're planning to have a mainnet launch happen sometime Q1 of next year. Uh, so stay on the lookout for that as well. We're, we're code complete from the say lab side at this point, we'll get the code audited. And then afterwards, um, there'll be a decentralized launch that happens sometime next year. Great. And final question, who do you think I should have on this podcast? Uh, you were mentioning the Nitro team, so I definitely think you should have them on. I can make an intro to you afterwards as well if you if you'd like. Okay, cool. All right, Jay, thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, sir. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We're a couple of people in the live stream today. So uh, thanks to you guys. And thanks to the specifically I want to thank those who are coming in like every week, you know, because I, I see you guys in live in the chat and um, yeah, just want to say thank you to those who've been following this process, this process, and helping me grow the channel, um, please make sure to subscribe, hit the like button, and the notification bell to get notified because we go live every Thursday, and we got another podcast li lined up next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. So all kinds of great content coming out here on the interop uh, as we wrap up the year. So thanks so much for joining, and thanks Jay once again, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>